had a good friend uh, in college. His name was Matt. Matt was, was blind uh, at birth. He was a great guy. Uh, very um, kind to all people. Always had a real big smile. Had a great family. Um, Matt was one of the hardest working guys I've, I've ever met. Um, he had people that just came around him and cared for him, but he was always the first to try to help and try to care for, for other, other people. Uh, Matt was, um, had a great sense of humor. Uh, he was a part of FCA with, um, with the college. I remember one night we were going to FCA and we were walking up the sidewalk and as you walk up the sidewalk, there's the horseshoe and there's a car parked right in front of the sidewalk with its lights on. And as we were walking, we were kind of looking to see who that was and why the lights were beaming down on us. And we got a little closer and it was Matt. And he's sitting in the driver's seat with one hand on the wheel and he's waving with the other hand with the sunglasses on. And we're all like, whoa, wait a second, what is happening? Why is Matt driving? And my friend uh, Brianna went over to check on him to make sure everything was all right and Matt's friend, uh, David, was sitting in the back seat telling him when to wave, um, just, to mess, just to mess with us, right? Uh, so Matt had a great sense of humor. And there's a group of us um, that were astounded by how Matt had uh, navigated his life. You'd walk with him into his apartment where you could see everything, and he had mapped it out. He had memorized where everything was. He didn't need his, his stick he could navigate his apartment without any type of uh, bumping into anything. He had, he had seen it. He had memorized it. He had saw things that, that we would assume that he couldn't see. Uh, he did the same thing with campus. When we'd go to, around campus, you'd see Matt. He would have a stick, and he would know exactly where he's going, where his class was, where the cafeteria was, where the ball fields were. He had the, the, the campus memorized. So he could see things that you would think that he was not able uh, to see. And so a group of us was like, what would it be like to be Matt? So we went to Walmart one day, and we, we partnered up, and one person was the GPS, and one person was the blind person. And all the person could do with the GPS was just give you verbal cues. You couldn't touch them, couldn't correct them. And after about 30 minutes of doing this, we realized that how hard, how difficult to be blind is. And so we went and we told Matt about uh, our experiment and just to tell him, man, we are so amazed by you that you're able to do what you're able to do. And I remember Matt's, after a long conversation, I remember he told us one thing. He said, I've always been this way and you learn to adjust or you don't. Some people don't adjust to being blind. But he says, but I'm still blind. And he said, but God has allowed me to see the things that matter. And I was always just kind of struck by that, that, that his perspective of sight, his perspective of seeing things, is that he says, God has allowed me to see the things that matter. So today we're going to jump in and continue to navigate through Scripture how Jesus is not just part of the story, but that Jesus is the whole of the story. That he's the one constant thread throughout the, the entirety of Scripture. That he's the one constant thing that brings us back to hope, to truth, to grace, to mercy, to love. And that God would allow us today to have eyes to see the things that truly matter. That God's perfect and holy word is about Jesus. Okay, so in this season of life, we can get so distracted by so many other things. But this morning, I pray that we would see the thing that truly matters. That Jesus is the hero. 
so we've kind of started this Advent series several weeks ago. We started in Genesis 3, where we saw the promise that God gave Adam and Eve that, that Eve's seed would be the one that would come and crush the serpent's head. And then we saw this promise between Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that through Abraham and Sarah's seed, one would come and be a blessing to the whole world. And then we saw the, the story of Moses uh, rescuing all the, the, the children that were first born out of Egypt by painting their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb, pointing towards that Jesus is the blood of the Lamb that would come and rescue us. And last week we saw the Davidic uh, covenant mapped out, where Nathan comes and he, and he promises that through the seed of David, the son of David, that the king of kings will come and rescue us. And that was a thousand years ago. And today we're going to go and we're going to be 750 years away from the beginning um, of, of Christ's life here on this earth. And during this period of time, we get to see and hear from one of the greatest prophets of all times. I think most and all commentaries would say that Isaiah was, uh, was given through the, the gift of the Holy Spirit words and articulation about who Jesus was, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The articulation that, that Isaiah has for us today throughout the entire book of Isaiah is astounding. To kind of catch us up... Um, this is, like I said, 750 years uh, before Christ comes. So it's 745 to 690 B.C. is when Isaiah is, is written. And uh, Israel continues to be unfaithful. They continue to rebel uh, against Yahweh. In the northern territory, the Assyrian army is bearing down on them. And they're fleeing and they're, they're fighting for uh, themselves and they're relying more on themselves than they're relying on God. They continue to be re- rebellious. And what God does here in Isaiah 9 is that God gives uh, through Isaiah to Israel a glimpse of their hope in a king to come. A glimpse that, that there is going to be a king that's going to come. And even though you're rebellious, he's going to continue to pour out his grace, pour out his mercy on you. And so we'll start in Isaiah 9 that Adam read. Verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And what Isaiah is saying is that there is a Messiah that's going to come and he will rescue you from your darkness. And when he chooses to shine light on you, at that point, when they see that light, they will recognize that the prophecy of Isaiah is, being, is beginning to unfold and the promises of God, which Jesus, which God will fulfill through Jesus. And now many will think that it will be in their lifetime. Many that, that hear this prophecy will think that it will be in their, their lifetime. That it will be 700 years, which they don't know that. We're on the other side of the story. We have that insight. But God is calling them to have faith in this King, this Messiah, to come. Start believing now in this Messiah to come. In Isaiah 9.3, it says, when this Messiah comes, and he starts to unpack the promises, it says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. So we need to know who the you is there. So the you is the Messiah. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divided the spoil, they being those who are the hearer of Isaiah's message. So you have multiplied, the Messiah is going to multiply the nations, and the Messiah who's going to increase its joy. He's going to bring a unified people of of all nations together when this light is shined. 
And they will begin to see what truly matters in the Messiah. And what they're doing, what uh, Elijah, I mean, Isaiah is doing is that he's pointing to this great joy that we will find. This great joy that we'll find in the Messiah. And our joy will begin and be made complete in this Messiah. Once in, when we abide in him. But not only that, not only it was when the Messiah is going to come, but Isaiah is pointing even further to the point where when Isaiah, not only does he come here, I mean, the Messiah come here, but he's also pointing towards when he comes in the eternal kingdom, when he comes to create a new heaven and a new earth and create a new kingdom. But then he uses this language of the here and now. He's speaking to those that are, that are warriors, those that are, are workers of the land. And so he says that your, your toil, right? He says that your harvest, when you see your harvest, it's going to be just like that. And you're going to divide it and you're going to be with great joy. So he's talking about it. He's like, hey, you remember at the end of the day when you guys have worked so incredibly hard and you know what's coming to you at the end of the day? It's kind of what you're motivated for is that you're going to get paid. And then you get to go home and you get to, to provide food and provide for your family. You know that joy that you get in doing that? As the, the, the breadwinner or the, the dad or the, the worker, you know that joy that you get? Well, multiply that by, by thousands and thousands. And he's just giving them just a glimpse of what it's going to be like. And then in verse 4 says, for the yoke of his burden. Now this is us for our yoke, for our burden, for the staff that's on our shoulders, the rod of his oppressors. That's us. The Messiah will come and he'll, he'll break it as the day in Midian. And so in Judges 7, Isaiah is pointing back to this war, this battle at Midian. And some of you may be familiar with that. It's the battle where Gideon, uh, uh, they, they narrow the people down to 300 people. God narrows it down to 300 people. And he sends them into battle against, against the Midian war. The warriors there, the army. And we don't even know how many that is. Uh, the Bible only tells us that, that it was uh, a countless number of camels. That's how we were identifying like what, how many warriors there were that were going to go against Gideon. But I say that because what the Messiah is going to point us to is that there's going to be a day where he's going to come and he's going to, to, to end all wars. He's going to come and he's going to satisfy the need to fight and to have battle and to create this, this tension that we feel like we're always having to be on top. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to make a way for sin to be defeated. And this Messiah is going to come as a king that's going to lead us to a place where we trust that his kindness and his love and his mercies are going to overcome our enemies. And that kindness is going to lead us to a place of repentance. But the Messiah has to come to suffer. And we have to find our hope in Him as His people. And that's what Isaiah is telling Israel at this point. is that I want you to find your hope in this Messiah, this King that is to come. And in verse 5, it makes an interesting statement. It says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel to the fire. In the tradition of this time, when you're at war, when you're in battle, you would take your blood-drenched garments and your boots and even sometimes even uh, the equipment that you would use. And at the end of the battle, if you're victorious, then you would burn it. And that was a statement of saying, one, we don't want to get rid of these filthy rags, but it was also a statement of like, we want to be free 
from war. We don't want to continue to fight. We want to get rid of this, this anxiety that maybe tomorrow we have to fight again. And so they would burn and it would become a, a fire. And it would uh, feed that fire. And what that's doing is pointing to the Messiah that's saying that one day you will no longer need your garments. You will no longer need your weapons. That the war will be complete. And victory will be in Christ. And we can lean on that truth when this king comes that he's going to put an end to all wars. So who is this king? Who is this Messiah that, that Isaiah is talking about? Well, in verse 6, he starts to unpack it. He starts to give us even more details than we could ever imagine. He says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This passage looks forwards, but also challenges the way that we will even see this Messiah. Some thought that it would be a powerful angel that would come as the Messiah. Some thought it would be a, an innocent man, kind of like Adam, that would come and rely on uh, the wisdom of the Lord. But no one thought it would be God in flesh. A part of the Trinity that would come and, and, and uh, reside in the sin-filled earth with us. No one thought it would be the Son of God coming as a servant king. But this is what it would take. We would need Emmanuel. We would need God with us for this victory to happen. Philippians 2.7, Paul speaking about Jesus and he says... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is showing us this perfect picture of God's grace, this gift that that we cannot produce in our own humanity, that we cannot earn or deserve. It's a gift only sent by God, a gift of being God in flesh, coming as the King of kings. And it says that the government shall be upon his shoulders. We say a lot about that this week, but I'll just say this. God has given us a government for, as a wonderful gift to show us that we are in need of a perfect governing God. We are in desperate need of a perfect governing God. And when we look at the government and we think about the things that we, that we don't agree with, and we dig down deep into the bottom of it all, you're going to find people just like me and you, sin-struck and with an agenda. And what he's, what he's saying in this statement is that it's pointing to a better time, a better government. Government, when God is, in, uh, is the ruler, and we are under his authority, and he is our king of kings, he is the one that we are going to surrender to. Then Isaiah begins to unpack the character of this baby king. And he starts with this, wonderful counselor. The glory of who he is, and what he has done, and every turn, if we think about Jesus and what he's done, if we read the stories and we read God's word, it is overwhelming that he is wonderful at every turn. 
that he will put you in a moment of awe if you just let it sink into who Jesus is. And so we are in need of, this, of Jesus as our counselor. And the other side of that is that there is, is that the words of a different counselor that sin entered into the world, in the garden. The counsel of a serpent that came in and challenged the word of God. A counsel that came in and said that you can be your own strength. You can be your own God. You don't need God. And that sin enters into, that, into this world. And that sin reduces us down to fools. And the epic center of, of foolishness is, is self-righteousness. A place where we think that we can do all things without God. And a belief that we can live life on our own. And so we need a wonderful counselor. We need a counselor to come in and to restore what the serpent aimed to destroy. We need that wonderful counselor to come in and plant deep inside of our hearts through the Holy Spirit that when we read God's word, it ignites a fuse in us. That it would lead us and counsel us. That the Holy Spirit would do something in us as we hear and as we read truth that it would guide us it would be our counselor this wonderful counselor he came and to direct us into a relationship with the father he came through uh, to earth as a baby and then he taught as a rabbi he died as a king and he's resurrected as a savior and we see that this counselor didn't just come to say hey you need to do this or you need to do that but he came and he lived with us. He lived for us. He put it on display in front of us so that we would know what it looks like to be and to follow this type of king. He is a wonderful counselor. And then it says that he's a mighty God. Sin doesn't just reduce us to fools, but it renders us unable. Unable to be who God designed us to be and to do what he created us to do, which is to bring glory to him and to enjoy him. That's what we are created to do, is to bring glory to the one that created us and to enjoy him. We see that in the garden before sin. And so we need a mighty God to come and to replace that, to restore that. And this king of kings will come with all the power and all the authority of God. And he will absorb all evil of all of history and all of the future until it's completely reconciled in the cross. This king has also empowered us to desire and to do what we would not be able to do without the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. He is a mighty God. But he's also an everlasting father. This king will not be a temporary king. This king will be without beginning or end. In this time era, when Isaiah was talking about kings, a lot of kings thought about, about themselves as fathers to the nation. They would think of themselves as being a father. But this father that Isaiah is talking about is a father that will not disappoint you in sin or death or neglect or abuse. This father is a father who knows your deepest needs and knows how to perfectly provide every single time. And through this father's life, death, and resurrection, he welcomes us, he ushers us, he invites us in to his family, 
to be co-heirs with his son, Jesus, to be adopted by the blood of Christ as sons and daughters of the King. And this is an invitation not just for the here and the now and the temporary moment, but it is for an everlasting time. Under the authority and the, the counsel of an everlasting Father. And then he says he's the Prince of Peace. Sin makes us enemies to God. And casts us into constant conflict with one another. Sin is antisocial. It's destructive. Sin brings us to want to fight and to want to always be right. Sin disturbs our families. Sin tells us lies and disappoints us when we pursue it. We are at war with God when we are living in sin. But Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that you may boast. It is a gift. And it is a beautiful gift. A gift that we can't earn, we can't achieve, we don't deserve. This gift is a gift that brings peace with God. And this peace offers, uh, when the king comes, it takes away all the brokenness, all the things that we've broken. We've broken this relationship with the Father, with God, and he makes it all right. He lays down his life so that we can have a relationship with a God of peace. And so he is the Prince of Peace. So under the careful direct, uh, direction of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah chooses the, these four names to communicate how the Messiah is going to exactly be and to show us that we are in desperate need of this type of Messiah. Long before we were born, God were appointed for us the one who will set all things right. The one who would take the brokenness and become broken for us. The one who would take our loneliness and go into a grave alone. The one that would uh, free us from the grasp of death by conquering it. The one who would point us to the future kingdom by being the suffering servant and the king of that kingdom. How does this child who was born and given to us as a king, how does he do all of this? As Adam read earlier, Isaiah 52 and 53 is this beautiful articulation of how this baby that was born and given to us, this Son of God, comes and makes all things right. And it starts with it being declared as a king. And Isaiah, it points back to Isaiah 6 where it says, He is high and lifted up. Where in Isaiah 6 they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So he comes as a king, as a servant, coming and cleansing the people by sprinkling of the blood. So how do the other leaders view this? Well, it says that it shuts their mouths. How, does it, how do they view when a king comes and cares and sacrifices and willing to give up his own life for the lowly? It says that it, they're floored, they're speechless, they're astonished by who this king is. But then there's this picture of this king is now being despised. This king is now being rejected by men. 
This king is now unjustly punished. And he's being punished by those he came to save. He would be drug out and beaten and broken. And then there's this change in the language that it goes from, from us, those that are watching, to being like sheep. And so it says that the sheep would turn their heads. And then it says that this king that is now identified as a sheep or a lamb. And this sheep is now taken to the slaughter. And it's taken to the slaughter for those, those other sheep. So none of those other sheep would have to go to the slaughter. It's go, he's going to, be, uh, to uh, be stricken for our transgressions. For the transgressions of others. So he's as a lamb, as a sheep to the slaughter. He doesn't open his mouth. And he sees that the other sheep are not looking. And he goes to his death. In verse 9 it says, it switches back from uh, the sheep language back to man language. And it says that this man is unjustly punished. And we all scratch our heads and wonder, why is this happening? Why is this innocent man being punished for us? Why is he doing this? How can he do it? And we see it's made very clear by the king of kings that this lamb, this, this, this innocent man, this happened. This is happening to him because of verse ten. It says, "Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put. He he has put him to grief. Grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his souls he shall see and be satisfied." By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to become accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. By the unjust death of this innocent man somehow justifies all those who are guilty of death. The will of God would be, sent, would be to send his son, this lamb, to send himself, a perfect and righteous God-man, to die so that many would be accounted righteous. This child king would be the savior of the world. But the story does not end there. Isaiah was not only speaking of a king who would be with us and die for us, but he's speaking of a king who would satisfy the hunger of death. And this king would go on to say in John 11, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And in his resurrection, Jesus points to an everlasting life where he is the father where He is the King of kings, where He is your brother, where He is your husband, where He is the holy, holy, holy of all eternity. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Isaiah is saying this is not just a temporary, this is for eternity. You see, Christmas is about the king. 
this king that's going to come, and he's going to draw us out of darkness so that we might be able to see what truly matters. A king who has come and has offered the gift of eternal salvation. Jesus was the seed in Eve, the blessing in Abraham, the judge in Egypt, the refuge in the wilderness, the king as a baby. Jesus has been the hero the whole time. And some of us in this world are still blind to this. Some of us have family members that are still blind. We all were once blind. But like, my hope filled, but like the hope-filled response of my friend Matt, as a blind man his whole life, his hope for eternity was in, with God. And he says, and God has allowed me to see the things that truly matter. So I'm thankful that, that most of us in this room, that God has done a great work in you. And you see what truly matters. And so our part of the Christmas story is to go and to share what it's like to be out from underneath the oppression of darkness and live in the light that a better day is coming. And this king will come and end all sadness, all sickness, all death, all sin, and we will be restored. Do you see? Do you see the things that matter during this Christmas season? Jesus came as a king at birth, and he's always been the king And he will always be the king. And so we're going to sing uh, Silent Night now. And I want us to reflect as we prepare to come to the table for communion that Jesus was Lord at birth. He's been the king the entire time. He's going to continue to be the king long after we're gone. And that we would point others to direct them to that truth that he is the king. And that we might all be encouragers of those that, to show them what truly matters. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, as we come to the table, uh, Lord, I pray you'd prepare our hearts. God, that we'd see uh, your grace and your mercy. God, that we'd see that you've been the, the hero the whole time. Uh, Lord, thank you for the guidance through the Holy Spirit uh, that we get to read your word, the story about you, and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, continue to show us the truths of who you are, God, even in the the days to come as we gather again on Tuesday to to worship you uh, at the the eve of your birth. Uh, Lord, I pray that that you do a miracle. God, for those that are out there that that don't see, for those that are out there that are blind to the truths, uh, Lord, I pray that you would draw them near. God, those people that are in our lives that we love so dearly, Lord, that you would free them, that you would free them from um, the oppression of blindness, of darkness, and you draw them into the light where they can see you clearly. God, that you have come to rescue, to restore, to reconcile, that you are the, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And you offer so much to us as broken, sinful fools. God, I pray that the self-righteousness would die and that we appoint others to your righteousness. And God, I know that only you can do that. I pray that we would be uh, men and women and children that would abide in your word and desire the things that you desire and make your name great.
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.